Hello, everyone. This is Fire Chief Paul Dow with Albuquerque Fire Rescue. Now, this podcast is designed to bring you helpful training and best practices and some additional resources that you can access from anywhere. So thank you for joining us and enjoy today's episode. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to uh, another exciting podcast. This is Lieutenant John McGee with uh, Albuquerque Fire Rescue. I'll be standing in today for Captain Adam West. And we have as a guest, uh, Deputy Chief Emily Jaramillo. We will be having a great talk about MCT and kind of uh, APD response protocols, how we got here and what we can expect moving forward. So with no further ado, uh, DC Jaramillo, welcome. Thank you, thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. So, you know, I'll jump right into it. Can you explain the agreement uh, between APD and AFR uh, for down and out and behavioral health calls like in the last year? Yeah, so um, a little over a year ago, probably about 18 months ago, mm-hmm. uh, we uh, were approached by the mayor at the public safety meeting. Um, he had seen a call for a down and out, and he saw that there was a engine, a rescue, Albuquerque ambulance, and two police cars on a down and out. And he asked us why we sent so many resources and we we've been doing it for a long time so we kind of explained to him what our response was um, that it was probably a delta call because the rescue was there Um, but he wanted us to work on um, efficiency between the two departments and how we were responding so when we uh, talked to APD uh, we identified uh, the down and out calls and the site calls as two where we were probably oversending resources so uh, those were the two that we kind of identified to make some changes to. So that agreement that we had made um, was that on the down and out calls, uh, there was if they were in public view, there was really no scene security issues and no reason that APD had to respond with us to check for scene security and then hang out because that's a priority one call for them just like um, because they were responding with us just like um, active burglary and other kind of more serious uh, serious so any response with AFR is considered a priority one call for them yes when we request they make it a priority one call so um, so we felt at AFR that um, if the pa- if the individual that was down was in public view, um, not in a dark alley or you know in a home, um, that it was safe for our, our crews to respond. And then if they saw anything once they got there that made them think the scene wasn't safe, they could request before proceeding to the scene. Um, so that basically cut the APD response. You figure we ran over. 16,023s and 32s last year, so that cut down a lot of responses for APD. Um, And so on their side, uh, they have extensive uh, mental health training um, and we're responding with us on those calls and so they have more mental health training than we do. They have more mental health training that than we do. So we decided that that might be a good uh, way to be a little bit more efficient in that response. So we worked with um, some of the APD leadership to come up with a policy for them that um, they would respond alone to our 25 alphas and 25 bravos. 
Um, so suicidal calls, um, kind of the more minor psych emergencies. Sure. And um, then they would only request us if there was some type of medical reason for us to go as far as uh, other medical complaints that we could treat. So trouble breathing. Almost calls or whatever. Yes. So w tell me about some of the resources that uh, APD have for behavioral health. So APD um, has a whole unit. It's the crisis intervention section, the CIS. Um, and that's their an entire unit that's devoted to behavioral health. Mm -hmm. And so the crisis intervention section is uh, made up of crisis intervention unit detectives. Got it. Uh, the COAST team, which is crisis outreach and support teams. Are they civilian? Those are civilian okay. teams that um, also will respond out to people in crisis. Uh, the civilian response was added because a lot of people in crisis, when they see a badge, um, can be it, a trigger. it can be a trigger. And so they added that civilian team. Um, they also added um, MCT teams, which are mobile crisis teams. Okay. And APD has currently four mobile crisis teams, and Bernalillo um, County, or BCSO, has two mobile crisis teams. So we have six, so to speak, for the county itself. We have six for the county itself, but speaking to our APD counterparts, um, AFR, we can't. We can request their MCT teams, um, and they said that it would be easier for us to request the APD ones versus the BCSO. BCSO sure. tends to like to keep their teams in the county response area, so where the sheriffs in Bernalillo County Fire are Primarily responding. Respond. That makes yeah. sense. So now the teams themselves, when do they when do they operate? When are so the teams operate seven days a week from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. Um, so the four teams have kind of obviously different days that they're working. Um, and so they are primi primarily going out by request of APD officers who get on scene, okay. but they also can be requested. If we get onto a call, which we recognize as being somebody and having a mental health crisis. And maybe they need some de-escalation. Yes. Okay. And because the m mobile crisis teams are made up of a... Um, enhanced crisis intervention trained uh, officer okay. and a mental health clinician. So if so you two people, two person teams. Yes. Okay. So if you feel value in having that mental health clinician responding out to your scene, um, you can request. Okay, but I guess so they can't be a scene safety issue. They'd have to go clear it, normal protocol for yes. that, right? Okay. Yes, so either the arriving officer will clear the scene or if the MCT team gets there first, they have a officer that can go in and clear the scene before the mental health clinician goes inside. That's interesting. So how do they determine once they've de-escalated or done their job, how do they determine where these people go? Are they going to the hospital? Do they go to jail? Do they go to a psych they, facility? So this a lot of their um, crisis intervention section was uh, the focus is jail diversion okay. for people that are experiencing crisis because they're not necessarily committing any crimes. So jail isn't really the place to take somebody um, for definitive care. So uh, they, you know, that's a kind of a lack in our community is a place to take people that are experiencing mental health crisis. We don't really have, we, we don't have an effective crisis triage center. Um, we have uh, PES, which is the Psychiatric Emergency Services off of Marble, um, mm. and then uh, Casemen. Right. Um, but a lot of these individuals also end up going to the emergency department because we don't have a lot of 
good places to transport them to. So if there's a medical component, do we play a part in that jail diversion uh, criteria or decision? Like, can we intervene? Patient says, I'm having trouble breathing. Officer says, no, he's not. Um, how do we, as a frontline provider, how would I address that? Yeah, so when we get requested out by APD for a chief complaint, then um, that's, that's where uh, we also have a little bit of different protocols than them. So we're going to follow the um, our, our EMS guidelines, the ABC okay. EMS guidelines, and treat the patient. So if the patient is having chest pain or shortness of breath or whatever their medical complaint is and they need to go to the emergency room, that is likely... Does that supersede, um, so to speak? I mean, that may be a strong word. Yeah, I mean, I think in that case, you mean versus if they were going to go to to jail. jail. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, if the person is under arrest and they have medical complaints and they request transport to the emergency room, we're going to transport to the emergency room. And then we have to work out with APD. Are they going to, um, if they are, they, how are they going to ride in with us? Are they going to ride in, in the back with us? Are they going to follow all those different protocols that we, we see based off of the, the, if the patient is being detained by, by law enforcement? Okay. You know, it gets interesting because I think sometimes there can be some contention, right, about sick, not sick. Um, is, is the patient being authentic? Is there a certain protocol or, or threshold that we, we look for to say, you know, are there certain vital signs maybe even that we should look for or is it just strictly presentation? Well, I, for, for them to take them to... Sure, for us to tell the officer, you know what, we believe he may be having a medical event. We take him at his word. We've measured his vitals. He probably needs to be transported. I think the biggest thing is if the patient requests it, we can't deny it. Hmm. So if, Interesting. if somebody is if somebody is um, being detained by PD and they have a complaint and they want transport to the emergency room, we can't deny that. And that's where sometimes there's some issues with the on-scene officers because, as you know, we get called to check out and clear patients for jail all the time, which is kind of taking away. We're, we're well, kind patients of patients may see that as a get out of jail free card, <laughs> they, and they may. But we're not there. We're you know we can't clear them, and so they might you know that's what that's Manipulate what the, a the bit. ER. Well, that's what the ER is there for. Okay. So um, and so that's where there can be some on-scene issues with the APD officer who was just following their protocol to call us out to check the patient. We're following we our get protocol. there. We're following our guidelines, which say we can't deny somebody transport if they request it. And that's where you can sometimes see some on-scene issues with APD. Gotcha. So there's another. Um, something I wanted to get clarification on, and it involves the certificate of evaluation. Mm -hmm. And how does that play into, because my understanding was that with this certificate of evaluation, the understanding is that we have this legal ability to force transport, or PD does, right? If, if they say you have to go, they have to go through this uh, certificate. Is that true? Um, yeah, so it, this has been another area that's been very, it's very difficult for APD and EMS to kind of understand each other's sides. And mm -hmm. so APD follows a state statute, which if a individual is going to prevent harm to themselves or is in grave passive neglect, they can legally force people against their will um, in for an evaluation. And so that's what the certificate of evaluation does is it's it whether the person 
wants to go for an evaluation or doesn't want to go, um, they determine with a clinician, so the evaluation is not filled out by a police officer, it's filled out by a um, mental health clinician. These are all higher trained people. These are, you know, nurse practitioners, social okay. workers, clinicians. Um, so it, the certificate of evaluation is filled out by a clinician and then APD can then force transport for them to be evaluated at a hospital or um, a clinic or whatever. Now, do we have any role in that? As so this is where we sometimes have issues on scenes because they might call us out um, to check somebody and the patient, and, and they might want us to transport. And we will have individuals that don't meet our criteria to force transport. And they will, they're the the, the so no medical scene. complaint, yeah. no SI or anything like that. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So we'll we'll we'll, we'll run on people that are alert and oriented, stable vital signs. Um, maybe there's nothing that we see, no real proof that they were SI. Um, you know, and then uh, they will have a certificate of evaluation and want them transported in an ambulance, and we have to explain to them people have the right to refuse medical care. Um, and we, that's what we follow. And we can't force somebody to receive medical care that doesn't want it. And so that's where you'll sometimes see these issues between the police department and AFR. And how does that affect the indigent population? Is, is that part of the criteria for the certificate? If <clears throat> perhaps they're homeless or they're living in squalor, so to speak, does that generate a certificate to um, say, well, he's not taking care of himself. We want him to go in and be evaluated. Yeah. So I think for the certificate evaluation, I think it it, it depends on probably how they're caring for themselves and um, what they find with that individual. So it, they could be it could be someone experiencing homelessness, right. or it could be somebody, uh, as you know, that is living in an apartment and living in squalor, mm -hmm. in unsafe conditions, that we would probably report to Adult Protective Services yeah. or something. Um, that might be a reason, um, if they just seem like they're not taking care of themselves very well, um, that they would try to uh, force transport where where we may or may not, so. And then what's the, what's the contingency for that? Let's say we, we tell the officer we we're not going to force transport them. Is there a contingency built in for that? Um, in on their for side, on, on their side um, we've been trying. Well, we've been trying to educate them more and more. Sure. So we go to their cadet classes to explain the EMS side of this, um, and and our kind of. Uh, role in our, our uh, requirements and so we're trying to educate them but ultimately you know they, they we have explained to them you have to understand that we will get a refusal and then they are the ones that have to transport wherever gotcha yeah. okay so with all of these new developments and then we'll, we're going to talk about some other stuff right because I know there's a DOJ component that kind of underlines all of this but how has this agreement changed our call volume so um, I, when we first checked, so after uh, 12 months of the change, uh, we ran our numbers on our site calls, so our 25s, and we had decreased our site calls by over 5,000. And so initially, I was ecstatic because I thought we had, you know, dropped 5,000 calls off our call volume. But then when we looked at the total call volume, our total call volume for last year didn't change that much. Hmm. Um, so were those calls just kind of moved into another classification or category? So what, I, what we think is happening is that um, there's an understanding um, 
and rightfully so that if the patient has a medical complaint, if they are complaining of shortness of breath or they are, um, you know, have severe lacerations or uh, a variety of other medical complaints that uh, we are to be requested out. And so it's my suspicion that these, um, these 5,000 psychiatric calls, a good number of them are hiding in sick calls, in trouble breathing calls, because what our dispatch is doing is now they're receiving a request from APD and it's, you know, I'm on scene with a psychiatric patient, she's complaining of chest pain, so then alarm is coding it as a, a 10 mm. um, because it's chest pain. And so um, that's really the reason why we added that uh, that uh, tab into image trend was to try to track that a little bit better. So it's still the dual response. It's still PD yes. requesting our presence yes. because the patient may have a complaint. So on scene, what do we do with that? I mean, is it, is it a normal protocol? Mm -hmm. We evaluate, we do our assessment. Yes. And then go from there. And then go from there. So we might get there and sometimes you get there and the patient says, I, I didn't have chest pain and uh, you know, I don't need you guys. And then you can get a refusal if the patient doesn't want your, uh, if, if you get on scene and the patient tells you, I don't, you know, I don't want you to touch me. I'm good. Um, you know, you can use your, deci your decision making as a provider um, in that instance um, okay. and follow our, pro our guidelines. So now, but for us to track that, is there, um, like, how do we track the PD, um, not response, but they're calling the us request. out, the request? So it's new. We started it uh, in the beginning of September. And so once we realized that uh, we, and really the reason we wanted to track it is I got a request from the city to um, give them a number of psychiatric responses that we had. And I felt like the 1500 number that we had over that tw past 12 months was an inaccurate re representation because I know that we're getting requested to psychiatric scenes. And so we added the, a, 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 a tab in RMS and it's one of the validity rules. So you can't close your report out without answering a yes or no question, which is, was AFR requested by law enforcement? Hmm. And the reason we added it is is not to big brother uh, law enforcement or anything like that, but we really wanna try to be able to track better um, how many psychiatric responses um, we have maybe hiding in other medical complaints. Now, how would you determine? Because if PD requests us to come out, perhaps it's for just to check out the patient, they have a medical complaint. How do we know which ones are being requested for psych calls and which one are purely medical? So what I, what I had uh, talked to Lieutenant Martinez and RMS about this when we were creating the tab and what our thought was was that we could then pull data that would show side-by-side -side, um, calls where we said yes and then we could make rows with the call type. So 26 alphas, six uh, Charlie's probably 10 Charlie's some of these call types that we think that the site calls are falling in and then through quality assurance we can go back and review those reports and see and cross-reference and see what the what what other information our officers put into their report okay great and then um, I think I'll just on that last one you know we have an increase in down and out calls but no patient found that's some of the data that I got is that related to the disengagement clause that I know is in the uh, APD SOP where they can choose to just completely disengage from the patient if they think it's in the best community of the patient or the community at whole? 
So I think what happened with the no patient found was when we took those calls from APD and they were no longer responding with us, um, what happened is a lot of those calls APD was going out first to and they didn't find anybody because it was the person driving to work that oh. saw someone sleeping on a bench, mm. calls it in, isn't willing to stop, and then um, by the time we respond, that individual has woken up and walked away. Okay. So we think that a lot of the uh, no patient found increases were um, because of that change. Gotcha. Just time. And then that's a great segue. So. What are we doing to address the call volume and the homeless and addiction problem? Like, yeah, so. I know we have BLS. Big, yeah, big question. Uh, so a couple of things that we did. So we did start our BLS uh, rescues. That was in the FY19 budget. Yes. And um, we, because of our staffing issues, we weren't really fully able to roll that program out until May. Um, and we've experimented with different May schedules. May of this year? May of this year, okay. yeah. So we have um, we have the three rescues on um, seven-day-a-week coverage, and they work four tens. And so every day there's at least one BLS, in uh, one BLS truck in service, and then some days there's two BLS trucks in service. Um, so they kind of rotate around. And they're responding to our 23 Bravos, our 32 Bravos, and then we uh, added... 26 alphas in September to see how that would go uh, taking a call type away from the rescue. So far so good? So far so good. Are the crews feeling that difference? Do they? Yes. So um, talking to uh, the crews at 12s and 5s and 11s um, overwhelmingly what we hear is they know when the BLS trucks go home. Really? Uh, they can, yeah, they can feel a change in their call volume. Um, you know, we're having the BLS rescues transport right now uh, for several reasons, but that's another thing that might be evaluated in the future. Um, we may weigh the pros and cons of having them transport for the system as a whole, and it might be better, that we might be better off not having them transport, but that's kind of a bridge we haven't crossed yet, so. Okay, and then I understand that we've also, some of the calls have gone to squad units. Yes. Okay. So we also added several months ago, we started a pilot. Um, and really what kind of sparked the pilot was just figuring out how we were going to distribute the BLS rescues. So we all know Central Avenue is crazy busy and is, you know, over 25% of our department's call volume is along Central. So we, when I was looking at where to deploy them, 13s is one of our busiest stations, our bus one of our busiest rescues and engine is not along Central, it's on San Mateo and I-40. So I, I started to think about, do we want a BLS truck to go up to San Mateo and I-40 and help cover up there? But then, you know, looking at station 13, there's other apparatus in the station that could help lighten the load for the apparatus. And so really to be efficient with what we have and keep our BLS rescues centralized on central, sure. um, we, we thought, let's try out and see if um, having the squads take the 23s and the 32s lightens the load for the engine um, without, you know, kind of changing the, the the uh response for the squad sure. because we still need squads on fires obviously they're and, a very asset the, to fires what's been the outcome 
so um, it, you know at first there was a lot of confusion um, it was uh, unfortunately for our dispatch the cat is so old a lot of it is stuff that the dispatchers it, it's their discretion okay. and um, and they have to remember and and it's just a lot for our dispatchers and so the first month what we found out is the squads were getting a lot more calls than the 23s and the 32s so their call volume was a lot higher than anticipated once we kind of worked that out with dispatch um, they've really kind of tapered off and are averaging um, right around what we were expecting so squad three is averaging two to four more calls and squad one is averaging about two more calls per, per day, day. Yeah. Well, that's not bad at all. But if you cumulatively, that's that's helping out with the general problem. Right? Yeah. If you the look at problem. the if you look at the call volume for the engine, um, it's it was engine thirteen was projected to be over six thousand calls this year, and um, based off of the numbers, which it it won't be accurate because we started at mid year, but um, based on the numbers, if we were to do it for twelve um, twelve months and then pull the numbers, we'd probably have them right around 4,000, probably over 4,000 calls, which That's is still a lot of calls. Yes. It still puts you over that 110% threshold. But it's better than 6,000. But it's way better than 6,000. <laughs> okay, and then just one last thing on that. Uh, I was reading about city security and PSAs for these 32s and kind of how that's going to be incorporated or is being incorporated. Yep. Now. So um, one of the things that we noticed, like we said, when we took back all the calls from APD is that um, a lot of them are these ghost calls where there's no patient found. And so city security, uh, so it, uh, transit security and city security used to be separate. Mm -hmm. um, city security has now um, merged with transit security. So it's all under city security. And they reached out to us as wanting to partner up with us to um, help respond to 32 Bravos that are along the bus routes and at the bus stops, bus stations, things like that. So. Okay. What about the libraries? Is that. Um, I think it depends on if it's on a bus route or not. Gotcha. Yeah. Right now, I think we're starting. I mean, this is a brand new okay. pilot program. And this is something that they were already doing. So anybody that's worked um, really along Central or Lomas. Um, city security is out, uh, you know, waking people up off of bus stops, asking them to move along. So now um, when some of these calls come into us from passerbys, instead of us sending an engine, we will be uh, dispatching city security to go check to see if there's from somebody From our there. dispatch, or is that a call to PD, then PD? So the call will always go through PD because of the, being the, the primary and then it'll get transferred over to AFR once it's uh, a down and out. And then um, our dispatchers will go through the flow chart that we implemented several months ago. And if it did, if it was a call that we would have kicked back to APD because they didn't appear to be in distress or any of the other reasons that we would send out fire, um, we'll be sending city security to go out and check. I think that will be a huge help. Um, glad to hear that. And then so uh, another question here. You know, <clears throat> we're all aware here in the city about the homeless problem. People go downtown, they kind of see these things. Maybe they don't always understand the reason behind it. So what can um, the community at large, like are they gonna see these differences as far as people sleeping on bus stops? Is that something that's part of the plan? Um, I think. Or is it just a know, residual outcome? I think that's a, a 
uh, there needs to be a bigger solution um, in our city and it's things that we luckily are at the table for um, because of all the great um, partners that we have with other city departments like Family Community hmm. who runs um, the West Side Shelter. I was going to ask about that. Yeah, so they, uh, hmm. you know, we all know the West Side Shelter is 20 minutes outside of Albuquerque, but they are trying to um, fund, which this will be something that voters can vote on in November, um, but uh, release some funding to build a centralized shelter in the city. In the city. In the city. And so I think that, um, you know, we, uh, it, it would be probably, it's a hard sell to get somebody to want to hop on a bus. Um, people experiencing homelessness, especially the ones that we see out in public the most because there's those are the ones that we always I think as firefighters when we think about someone experiencing homelessness we think of our down and outs but we have families as well we have a lot of families there's probably more people that are experiencing homeless that we never interact with as firefighters um, because they're couch surfing they're living in cars they're not accessing 911 these aren't people with substance abuse or mental health issues they're just um, you know falling on hard times and so uh, the Westside Shelter right now has, um, they're, they're doing another two weeks of being open 24 seven. And they're having, they, during the day- Is that because day, we're changing seasons or? Um, they, they just wanted to pilot it. It's the second time that they've piloted it this year. Okay. And so what they're finding now that it's getting a little cooler there, during the day they have about 150 people there. Um, that just didn't have anywhere to go during the day. And a lot of them are families. And so um, there's times when they'll have 30 families staying out there um, with wow. children. So um, the, the shelter, having um, shelter with services and permanent housing, transitional housing is all key to kind of seeing, um, it, it, seeing such, so much visibility with, with our homeless. But we also have the people that we interact with the most on the fire side, which are the individuals with substance abuse issues and mental health issues, or sometimes both. And so for them, they need more than just housing. They need treatment. They need detox. They need mental health. Is that all projected when this new concept of the West Side Shelter, is that all projected to be in-house? Yeah, well, so the new concept is definitely something that's going to link, um, try to link people with more services. And they're trying to work with the county so that we provide certain services in our city facility and then places like Matt's might provide different services. Gotcha. Um, because really there's just a huge gap in our community for um, any of those things that these individuals need. And so what we see on the fire side is we see, you know, that's when you pick up somebody as a down and out in the morning, they go to Loveless and then they get back out and you see them with their bracelet you know at midnight that night right again because there's just you know it's just a cycle because there's really no effective um, way to get them any kind of treatment so right does now. crisis triage how does that fit into so um so with this city and this is all stuff that i've learned from our partners at family community i can tell you a year and a half ago i knew none of this um but what what crisis triage and then step-down care does is like when somebody goes in that's experiencing a mental health crisis, um, they might get you know care for a certain time frame. So 
uh, and then they get discharged. And so if they're also experiencing homelessness um, or if they don't have a support system, a lot of times they just go right back into crisis. And so we really need some kind of step-down care where somebody can then get continue to get kind of intensive um, mental health care. Um, but our heart program is not designed for that? Our heart program? Yes. No. So okay. our heart program is kind of working on a whole different aspect of okay. the 911 system. I think maybe there's some confusion, right, with that, that we find these patients, we follow them, we're part of their step-down care, we're making the referrals, but that's not our function. So we're not part of step-down care, so they're not referred to us. Like, if they get out of the ER, um, we're not getting the referrals that way with the heart program so the heart program is really focused on referrals from our providers on people that they feel would need some assistance with getting resources um, and so that's or being identified through just being a frequent caller through image trends so. there's a lot going on so let's to sum it up we have a lot of community outreach right and yes. would you say these programs are key to helping all of this come together? Because what's the overall objective? Like, what are we after? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, probably setting into all of this, it was, it's always to reduce our 911 calls for these low acuity problems. But I think what we've really learned is that, um, that it's, it's not, it's more, it's bigger than just reducing our call volume, that this community just, it, it, we're not fixing. We're, we're, the social of, components. Yes. Right. Yeah. There's a lot but of. Would you say we're key to all of that to helping that? Because we were talking to state representatives and they kind of struggle with this problem. Uh, the homeless problem is is sometimes it can be a trigger. It's sensitive, right? Mm -hmm. Even how to refer to them, but a lot of times I don't think it's completely realized how uh, emergency services, PD, AFR, how we help are going to be needed to help to solve these problems like well i think it's it, that makes it reactive right because there's no programs effective programs for these individuals and we can't get them in to talk to a doctor i mean it's even hard for people with insurance to go see their primary care absolutely let alone you know i was just talking to somebody that was trying to get their child in to see a psychiatric clinician and they were having to wait like several months and they, you know, that's somebody that has insurance. And so there's just no resources. And so what ends up happening is fire and police will always come if you need us. And so we end up being kind of a Band-Aid on what needs to be a bigger fix. Um, and that's why, in, uh, you know, investing in things like an effective housing center that's offering services um, is a step in the right direction. And all the community outreach that AFR and APD do is another kind of effective way to try to help um, before you know problems get worse. Okay, and then we'll wrap it up here. So let's say we have someone who listens to this podcast or watch on YouTube, and they have family members or people that they know who may uh, benefit from these resources. What's the best way for them to reach out to either us or to access those services? Um, I mean, I think it's I think it's kind of hard just to reach out to us for our services because a lot of our services and APD services generated are from generated from 911 calls. Um, I really feel like people that need connection with services that are in the city, they're one of their best resources is probably to reach out to our family community services. Family community because services. they have I mean they have so many programs from early childhood that. Isn't was is never full. If you need your if you need uh, pre K for your child, um, 
they've got that all the way through um, you know the city has seen our senior services also so I think for people that are you know if it's a non-law enforcement and non-fire person that is watching this podcast and is like I need some help for my family member I would probably actually start through family community okay. um, and you can go on the city website and find their find that. Mm-hmm. it's good to know and you know to close out we'd like to thank all of our frontline providers thank you DC Hunter Meal for being here providing this information to APD and all of our partners we want to say uh, thank you and um, yeah just keep watching the podcast they, uh, we're going to continue on and hopefully these are educational and helpful for you so with that we'd like to say good afternoon and uh, please like and uh, comment. Thanks.